You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. We're going to spend the next five weeks, six, five Sundays, um, trying to do something a little bit uh, different preaching-wise, we are going to try to collectively sit at the foot of the cross and hear the words of Jesus. And so the next five weeks of uh, sermons, I'm going to try to not have them as much of sermon-esque kind of structure, but more uh, giving us something to just sit and ponder on on the week. Uh, Growing up, uh, here in Alaska, when I was growing up in Anchorage, I never heard, I don't think I ever remember ever hearing of Lent, uh, other than you know, the stuff that comes out of your dryer. Um, but it was when I moved to South Louisiana that is 95% Roman Catholic that Lent became a thing. Uh, that there was, you know, they only served fish on Fridays at the, at the school, at the cafeteria, and uh, everybody did just kind of different things, and everybody was talking about what they were giving up for Lent and all that stuff. So in my mind, Lent was just a Catholic holiday. That's, what, that's all Lent was. And I wasn't Catholic, so it wasn't something I needed to pay attention to uh, or, you know, give a rip about. Uh, but it wasn't until later in life that I realized that there's actually a much larger group of Christianity that is observes Lent, not necessarily as a holiday in the sense of like, you know, they're taking off extra from work for it or anything like that, but basically in the same way that we observe the whole Christmas season, right? Like, you know, everybody makes the joke about, you know, you're not supposed to put up your Christmas tree or start playing Christmas music until when? Af- yeah, everybody disagrees on that, right? Uh, after Thanksgiving, that's the correct answer on this, guys. Okay, you know, but the, it's this whole season, right, of preparing for it and setting and enjoying the music and enjoying that. By the end of it, you're just like for crying out loud, somebody put Mariah Carey out of her misery. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but it's this preparation time of all those kind of things, and that really is what the season of Lent is. Um, if you think about Easter as a Christian holiday, I mean, it's obviously significantly huge that Jesus came to earth as a baby. That's huge, right? That's, I mean, that's God in the flesh. That's pretty incredible. But if He didn't do Easter, then there's not much different between Jesus coming as a baby and Zeus coming as a, just a person, right? Like the story of the thing is not as significant except the why did He come? Why did Jesus come? And it was ultimately to conquer sin and death. To be, to sin the double cure of our, uh, the effects of sin in our lives, separating us from God, but actually giving to us eternal life in Him. And so we want to spend the next five Sundays, including today, sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to the words that He said hanging on the cross. There are seven statements recorded for us in the four Gospels of the actual words of Jesus while He is hanging on the cross with nails through His wrists, with His back scourged, uh, with the experience of the brutality that was the cross. And Jesus makes seven declarations or seven statements. Some of them uh, you know, are, have 
uh, scriptural overtones. Some of them have very practical overtones. And my desire for us is that just we would just sit and as uh, imagining that we're in that place, watching the agony, being like uh, Mary and Martha and uh, and little John and these that were there, and watching and hearing him say those things, and just pondering the reality of what those things meant. How many of you can say that at some point in time in your life you have experienced excruciating pain? Okay. Uh, for sure, every lady that's ever given birth would you know, have a category for that. Um, any guy that's had a cold would say... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, uh, you know, uh, the, the reality of pain in our life... I think two, I can just say two times in my life that I could say that I experienced what I would classify as like excruciating pain. Both of those involved breaking a bone. Right? One was when I was 11, and I actually don't remember much of it because I sustained a concussion in the midst of that. But I had an ice ball lobbed at my face that broke my left eye socket out. Uh, and so I have like patchy memory of that. But I just remember being in unbelievable pain. Um, then the, the second time was, uh, gosh, let's see, I'm, I'm losing track of time now. Was that three years ago I broke my leg? Yeah, three years ago. Uh, I broke my leg on the beach, unloading a four-wheeler out of, uh, out of the boat. Uh, and I, I just remember all of a sudden just explosion of pain. But there's an interesting thing about pain. The real you comes out when you're in pain, right? Because you have no margin to be able to pretend. You have no margin to be able to put on airs or anything else, right? If you're in pain, it's the real, like, it's that godly grandfather that is always super pious and he hits his hand with the thumb and then you find out that he learns French, that he knows French, right? <laughs> like, the, the, rea- the reality of it is you can't, you can't bear things back. And there's something that I learned about myself in the midst of that. I am incredibly obstinate. Uh, hard-headed. That's a, that's a simpler term for that. Um, and like, I kind of know that about myself, but in the midst of, of extreme pain, it became incredibly obvious because I broke my leg, four, my four-wheeler throttle got stuck, jumped out of the boat, I got pushed out of the boat and landed and rotated my leg and uh, received what was called a masonu fracture. Basically, uh, imagine like, the, you guys remember the Rube Goldberg experiments where they push the thing and the marble goes down and all these chain reaction of stuff. It's basically that in the leg where I sprained my ankle but it broke my knee. Okay, uh, And I remember getting in and it hurts and I'm running, trying to run on a broken leg to go get this four-wheeler that's ripping across the beach. Then I get to it turned off and I'm just all writhing in pain. And of course Shell comes to me there and Ben Blasco is up on the hill and kind of it's this big fiasco kind of thing. And in the midst of incredible pain what is going through my mind but the fact that I need to load the boat on the trailer and everybody's saying no you don't well guess what I did I loaded the boat on the trailer now Shell did not let me drive home to her credit but it was one of those things that I was like I did not realize how hard headed I was because as, as, I, I, I couldn't mitigate any of that in the midst of pain it was one of the reasons why I have realized that Shell is one of the most um strong human beings I've ever met. Because after she delivered Evelyn, and I watched her do this for all of our other kids, but specifically after she delivered Evelyn, the the nurse in charge of delivery came up to her and she said, can you teach a class to women on how to do that? (laughs) Because she was cool and collect and together. 
Because that's who Shell is, right? When we think about Jesus on the cross, the word crucified uh, is the, it's a transliteration that, for Latin that we get the word excruciating from. The word that we use to describe the highest level of physical pain that you can experience. Not just um, it's an ache or a pain, but excrucio, excruciating pain. That's crucifixion. And Jesus is in the midst of that. And as He's in the midst of pain, Jesus makes some declarations. And today we're going to look just two of those and see the reality of who Jesus is. God in the flesh, when He has no extra energy for us to even claim, well, maybe He was, you know, being super spiritual or something like that. There's no, there's no margin for that. There's no room for that. Take a look with me at Luke 23, starting in verse 33, and it says this. When they came to the place called the skull, other you might say Golgotha, there they crucified Him and the criminals that were with Him, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father... Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him and saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and offering him sour wine or vinegar. And saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription that had been nailed above him. This was, uh, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him also, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, Today, you shall be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Two statements that we're going to look at today are these two that are here in Luke 23. They're fairly easy to remember, very easy to to put into memory. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then secondly, Jesus says, Truly today, you will be with me in paradise. Just thinking about the reality of the, uh, the historical event of this, the brutality that was the cross, the experience that Jesus had had. Think about the emotional toll that is weighing upon Jesus, even aside from the physical toll that is weighing upon Him. He had had this uh, emotional high, almost if you will, the week prior to what we would call Palm Sunday, the, sun, the day in which Jesus entered back into Jerusalem to the, the cries of a 
king returning in victory as they were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David and putting palm branches on the road and throwing their coats on there. Jesus riding on a young colt in, not on a war horse, but on a colt, a symbol of a king who is coming back from battle in peace. There is no more conflict in this. This one that is coming to rule and to reign uh, in the picture of that. And we see that whole picture of, uh, of uh, His uh, Messianic kingship and everything that is there. We see Him being tried and uh, tested, if you will, as people would come and say, well, Jesus, what about this and what about that? As He's in this whole pa- uh, Passion Week. And then we see the... Uh, the Lord's Supper, which is the Passover feast that they were at, and this intimate time with His closest friends as He's sharing His heart. And as we've been looking at the last um, number of Sundays, uh, Sunday nights, this story that Jesus, after Judas uh, leaves Him, and He begins to divulge to the disciples these beautiful truths about who God is. It's just this intimate time that we have the Garden of Gethsemane where He invites them to come and pray with them, and they can't do it, and they sleep... And there begins the moment of trial. When the uh, guards come to arrest Him, all of the disciples scatter. Jesus is left by Himself. Even Peter, His rock, denies knowing Him, terrified of a little girl, and what it might be said about Him or any of those kind of things. He goes through a sham trial by Himself, is beaten within an inch of his life, is stripped naked, is forced to carry the cross member of a, uh, of a cross as far as he physically can, and he physically can't do it. His, he's lost so much blood. His blood pressure is dropping out to where he can't do it, and they have to uh, grab a man by the name of Simon, who, interestingly, for you to know, if you uh, look just before the passage that we read, verse 33, back up in 26, uh, it says that there was Simon of Cyrene. That seems very specific. It just doesn't say that... And that the Roman soldiers picked a man to carry the stuff for it. This is because Luke was a historian when Luke compiled his Gospel of Luke and the, the works of Acts of the Apostles. There's more specific names in those two books related to the stories and events that took place because Luke very most probably went and interviewed these individuals and said, did this happen this way? How did this take place? What was the nature and how did it work? And those kind of things. So Simon of Cyrene is specifically uh, mentioned there that he was one that carried Jesus' cross member peace because Jesus could no longer do it. And at that place, the place of Golgotha, we don't actually know where that physically was. There's some speculation about it. If you go to Israel today and you go on a, a tour of the Holy Land, they'll take you to a place that they call Golgotha. It may or may not actually be the site um, of it. The reason that uh, site is called Golgotha is because uh, during the, the crusade periods they were trying to identify all of the places that are mentioned in the scriptures and there's one particular mound that if you look at it at the right angle it looks kind of like a human skull in its profile and so they assume that that's the place of, of it. You know, But at, at any rate, it was very much a real place that was known in their day. And He is brought there and crucified. And it's interesting to note, 
based upon Jesus' first statement because it says, Jesus was saying, meaning Jesus didn't just say this one phrase one time. It was He continually said this phrase again and again and again as they're bringing Him to the place, as they're throwing Him on the ground, as they're stretching out His arms, as they're taking the nails and driving them through His wrists, and as they are doing exactly what they are professionally trained to do, inflict the most pain, the most suffering, the most agony upon this person that they deem less than themselves. Jesus is crying out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. At face value, it's a pretty fascinating, even just turn of phrase that Jesus uses. It's Jesus saying, it, it just face value, they don't, they don't know what they're, what they're doing, when in fact, they knew professionally what they were doing. They had made an art form of the most cruel way of killing a person. When we think of crucifixion, it's, it's an interesting thing for us as Christians because it's, it, the cross is the symbol of Christianity, right? Like we, we have one there. and uh, you, know, you, you might buy earrings that have a cross on them or a necklace that hangs on them or whatever. Nobody goes to a jewelry store and buys a necklace that has an electric chair on it, right? None of us do. We don't do that. You don't go to the store and get you some earrings that are the lethal injection tables, you know, hanging off of your ears. That would just seem like you know, unless you're like into heavy metal bands or something like that. That's not, you know, people don't, we don't do that, right? But that's exactly what the cross was. When, when Jesus looked at His disciples and He said, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me, all of His disciples knew exactly what that meant. That didn't mean take up your burdens or there's going to be hard things that you're going to have to do. Crosses for, were for one purpose. Death. That's all they were for. That Jesus knew the cross was in his, his future. He knew it was coming. In fact, He told His disciples a number of times and they just couldn't even conceive of what that was going to be. And in that crucifixion and in that cross, the Roman soldiers that were tasked with taking Him and these two other prisoners... They would lay them out on the cross and drive nails through a little chunk of the wrist. If you take an x-ray of the, the wrist, there's this conglomeration of bones that shows up right in the midst of that. And if you even take your own hand in it, you can feel right in the midst of that kind of a, a place. It's almost if you just imagine all the bones kind of come together like this. And there's this little spot right in the middle of that that you can move. The, the pictures that we see of it saying he was nailed through his hands, that's, that's not how the Romans did that. That can't support body weight. It would literally rip through. They would put it through the wrist, which in the in the Jewish world, when they would describe the word for hand, literally means from the middle of your forearm forward is the description of that. And they would put that through there because it could physically hold all of it. But they also did that because right in the midst of that, and you guys ever heard of a thing called corporal tunnel syndrome? Yes. People get it to type and those kind of things. Or uh, I knew a lady that got it because she had a daycare and literally she just held babies all the day and she got it because she held babies all day long in that kind of a position. What that is, is you develop scar tissue on a bundle of nerves that runs, guess where? Right through the middle of that socket. And the Romans knew that, and they knew that if you drove a nail through it, it would feel like your arm was on fire. 
everything hurts. But that doesn't kill you. And the blood loss doesn't kill you. What kills you is suffocation. As you're hanging on the cross, and you'll see pictures of this, they would overlap the legs, drive a nail through the feet, but they would do it with your feet bent and your arms suspended. And as you're pulled up like that, your diaphragm, the part that uses to pull air into your lungs, can't pull down adequately enough to be able to pull air into those lungs. And the only way to do that as you're stretched out in that is to pull yourself up and push against your legs. And as you do that, it gives clearance for your diaphragm to be able to pull down and take in, lo- take in air into your lungs and then you drop. And every time you do that, hour upon hour upon hour, it puts pressure and pressure and pressure upon your systems and your lungs begin to fill with liquid. Stress begins to encompass your heart. And as we see even with Jesus, the pericardium sac around the heart, the little, the literal uh, membrane bag that surrounds the heart, begins to you get, begin to go into heart failure. There's fluid that builds up inside of that heart, and it begins to put pressure on the heart, and more and more pressure as it goes. So it's such a fascinating thing when Jesus looks at these professional executioners who have mastered a form that is so terrifying to people that good Romans wouldn't even talk about it in polite society to say they don't know what they're doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. But there was something much more deep in what Jesus was saying, right? Jesus was not saying they're not professionals in what they're doing. Jesus was saying they're acting in ignorance of the reality of what it is that they're doing. There's an ignorance to this that one, they didn't realize, they they thought they were carrying out justice, uh, being patriotic, uh, doing what they meant to be good soldiers to do. That's what they thought they were doing. They didn't think we're fulfilling Scripture. Because right after that, he says, after he prays that, he says, then they cast lots, dividing up his garments amongst themselves. That's a direct fulfillment of Scripture from Psalms that describes what would take place in the midst of that. They have no idea themselves, as those soldiers, that what they are doing is executing a man that is actually innocent. It really is one of the scariest things to me to think about our justice system is that we do not have the ability with absolute certainty to always know that every person that gets convicted of a crime is actually guilty of that crime. We just have a jury of peers. They present their case, their evidence. It's very rare that people get caught rot red-handed, right? They usually have to build a case for it. And so we find uh, as the years goes on, there's people that uh, are getting out of prison now that have been in prison for decades, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that all of a sudden are found to be... Actually, DNA evidence says they didn't do it. It was another person that did it. How terrifying that is, Right? But Jesus says of them, they're acting in ignorance. They don't actually know his crime. Does anybody know what the actual crime that Jesus committed that was deemed worthy of his death? What was his crime? Blasphemy. He claimed to be God. Guess what? He was God in the flesh. 
even as a man, he was innocent of the crime that he was being tried for. So not only were they crucifying somebody that was innocent, they were crucifying the Son of God. And they had no clue. In the midst of incredible suffering, in the midst of incredible pain, when Jesus could have been so focused on Himself, just thinking, this hurts, this hurts, I don't want this, right? He could, he could even revert back to the, the experience in Gethsemane where He's praying, God, take this from me if there's any way. Take, this is me, it's my focus. But what is Jesus doing in this? Father, forgive them. He's thinking outside of Himself. He's thinking for them. Here's the character of Jesus in great pain. He's being obedient to the reality of His truth that He taught to others. Jesus said when He was beginning His Sermon on the Mount, He said, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of God. In the great pain of crucifixion, Jesus' thought is for His enemy. Jesus models for us in the midst of that, His natural reflex is to flex on the reality that forgiveness is not a suggestion. Jesus models for us this reality that we don't really like it's, it's easier to forgive people when they ask for forgiveness, right? It's easier. It's not always, it's not necessarily that it's easy. If somebody's hurt you, if they've wronged you, if they've, if they've acted in bad ways towards you, and then they come to you and they're like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that, I'm sorry that I did that. You may be like, whatever, I forgive you. Doesn't mean that it's easy, Right? But Jesus does not say when you forgive, forgive people when they've come to you in repentance or forgive, you know, whatever. He's saying, on you, forgive. In his statement on that, it's saying, if they're your enemy, it means that they're still your enemy when you're forgiving them. These guys that are driving nails through Jesus' hands, in the midst of that, he doesn't say, I forgive, and they're like, cool, let's go, you know, let's go hang out together and go camping and go, you know, like they're not instantly friends. They still are whacking away at the nail. As we sit at the foot of the cross and we think about the reality of that experience, here's the other part of this. When Jesus looks at us, as His followers. And I know this is a different struggle for generations and age and where you're at in your own story and those kind of things. But all of us go through different phases or different seasons when we look at our own life and we just say, I, don't, I just don't know that He can really love me. Like that He can truly, really... Like my story... It's so messy. It's so, I've screwed up in so many unique ways. I've, I've done... I just don't know... You need to sit at the foot of Jesus and just hear His words over you. Father, forgive them. There's so much ignorance. Jesus' 
The, the reality of the cross is that Jesus was generous with forgiveness. He wasn't stingy with it. There was nothing that those guys had done in that moment that earned that forgiveness, that warranted it. In fact, everything that they were doing in that moment deserved His wrath, His hatred, His justice. They were killing the Son of God who is innocent. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Luke records for us that what happens after those statements, if you imagine, is he's saying that again and again and again, before the nails are in, after the nails are in, as they're hoisting the cross up and it drops down into the hole, as he's hanging up there, he continues to say that. And in the midst of all of that, everybody is mocking him. The people stood by and they looked on. The rulers sneered at him. The guards, the soldiers, they mocked him. And even the guys dying on either side of him. In fact, one of the other authors says that initially both of them were in the midst of that. Both of them. They're, they're both dying and they're taking final... I mean, think, about, think about how crazy this is. Every word they say involves them pulling against nails to suck it in and then they have air in their lungs and they throw it out as an insult. How crazy is that? And yet, in the midst of all of that, one of the criminals has a dramatic change of heart. Something changes in him. When the Scriptures describe these two characters, sometimes it uses the term thieves. The term criminal that is used here is one that describes a person who acted in their crime in violence. So these were armed criminals. These were ones that did an armed robbery that very well possibly resulted in death of someone. Not only are these uh, thieves, they're those that very probably killed somebody in the process of stealing from them. So these are people that very much deserve the actions that are happening to them on either side, and they acknowledge that fact. And he says of one of them, as he's mocking them, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself! Oh, and us! I'm going to have a last laugh in the midst of all of this. But the other, he looks at him and he says, don't you fear God? There's something that's clicked in his spirit. There's something that clicked in his mind. He's going like, I'm fixing to die. All the questions that I have about afterlife, I'm fixing to know the answer to. And I may not like the answer that I'm going to get. And so he looks at Jesus... And he says to the other guy, he says, we are indeed suffering justly for we received what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, so again, this is the same as him saying, and he was saying, Father, forgive them. This is something he says, that this criminal says again and again as he sucks in breath and he calls out to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Here's the thing. Jesus was, at this point in time, a celebrity. Everybody knew who He was. Everybody knew who He was. It's, it's very possible that these guys, like we don't, we think of criminal justice system as taking years and years and years and years for things to play out. It's very possible that when the celebration of the uh, Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday was the day that these guys decided, hey, let's rob this guy that's coming in for Passover. We'll beat him up on the side of the road, take his stuff, and oh, he died. Oh no, we got caught. We've been convicted. We've been tried. Now we've been executed. Like, they would have been in the mix of knowing this Jesus came in. They would have known the story. Jesus uh, had preached to the multitudes uh, all around for three years. The word of Jesus had spread all over the place. People had heard excerpts of His sermons and heard about His miracles and all of these kind of things. And in this moment, this criminal who is literally hours from His last breath, says to Jesus, remember Me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gives us the second statement that we will sit with today. Truly I say to you, you shall be with Me in paradise. This passage of Scripture is used in a lot of books, in a lot of sermons, um, to try to build a theology of what is known as the intermediate state. That's a big theological word for what happens from the time a person dies, a Christian dies, until the resurrection. The, the promise when Jesus says, the dead in Christ rise and we meet with Jesus and we get to rule and reign with Him in His new cre- uh, his, uh, the new heavens and the new earth that He makes for all eternity. Again, just as a point of clarity, the Bible, when it describes eternity, does not paint the picture of what we call Tom and Jerry theology that will just spend all of eternity floating around as disembodied spirits on a cloud with a harp. Uh, that's not the picture that Scripture paints at all for that. Uh, the picture that Scripture paints of eternity looks a lot like the world in which we live just made new and made afresh with us living in it. And Jesus being present in the world with us in all of His goodness, in all of His splendor, and in all of life. So the question then that many people have is, what happens to a Christian when they breathe their last in this world and there is a season of time between that moment and obviously Jesus hasn't come back yet, right? Been 2,000 years been a whole lot of Christians that have died. What happens to the people? What, hap- what does it look like in that period between that? And this is one of those passages that gets pointed at, right? See, Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now here's the thing that's going to make you really frustrated about what I'm fixing to say. The Bible actually doesn't say a whole lot about what the intermediate period talks about. In fact, as much as I've dug into it, I've found about four places where either Paul or Jesus say something along the lines of, this is kind of what happens when somebody dies, a Christian dies, uh, in that intermediate period. Here, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Another time, Paul talks about those who have 
uh, gone to sleep. And so it builds, people build this whole theology, or idea of soul sleep, and what does that look like? Just, he's literally just saying they died. That's, looks, have you ever seen somebody that's not living, they look like they're asleep. And then Jesus gives a, com- a comforting, or sorry, Paul gives a comforting word to the, uh, to the church in uh, Corinth, I believe it is, where he says uh, that to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. So what does it mean for Jesus to look at this man and say, truly today you shall be with me in paradise? Well, there are a couple of things I think that can be very encouraging for us as we sit there and ponder the reality of this. This man, dying on the cross, did nothing religious. He didn't get baptized. He didn't get confirmed in his church. He didn't get his name on a roster anywhere. He didn't attend a church membership class. Uh, He didn't memorize any amounts of Scripture. He literally did nothing spiritual except provide faith. He had done, like, in his actions, in his saying, did he undo any of the wickedness that he had done? No. Right? Right? It's, it's why in the, our justice system, if, if somebody gets convicted of a crime, and they, at the end they say, do you have any words? And they look at the family that they've hurt or wronged or whatever, and they say, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. They don't get off. They still go to jail, right? Because they didn't undo what they had done. And yet in this situation, he says, Jesus, remember me when you're in your kingdom. He's acknowledging you're the king of a kingdom that you've been preaching about. And when you enter into that kingdom, all I'm asking is you should remember me. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's an incredible thing about the simplicity of the gospel in relation to faith. This is a matter of looking at Jesus and saying, you are who you say you are. We can make it all kind of fancy and chain whatever else and those kind of things, but it's this heart reality of just him this simple trust that was in that. Now some of you might be like, okay, well that's great, that's cool. But what does it mean? What does it mean? I'm gonna be you're gonna be with me in paradise. What does that look like? How does that function? Are we going to be in a body? Are we not going to be a body? Are we going to be just kind of this, you know, we're, we're now one with the force and we're just, you know, what, what is this? What, what does it mean? The Bible doesn't give it clear. The Bible doesn't give a clear picture of what that looks like. But oftentimes I think we're asking the wrong question when we look at a passage like that. We're asking, what is paradise going to be like? What's paradise going to be like? But was that the point of what Jesus said? Listen to what He said. Just sit at the foot of the cross and listen to the words that He says. Today, you will be in paradise. No, no. What do you say? Today, you will be with Me. You'll be with Me. In paradise. He could have put anything on the end of that sentence. And it would have been a wonderful sentence. 
You will be with me. When Paul taught on this same, this intermediate state, what is what? We breathe our last, and then we're waiting for the resurrection. And what happens in the midst of that? Jesus says to them, to be absent of the body is to be in some ethereal place that's got cloud, you know, or some celestial city or something. No, no. To be absent of the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. Today you'll be with me. As we think about this moment of death, for a lot of people it can be quite scary. I was with two of my, my two grandmothers very, very shortly before they passed. One of them I was with her when she passed. The other I was with her. Uh, she was very, very close. And for both of them, there was there was some level of anxiety. It was just it's hard, it's hard to breathe, and body's not working right, and it's 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 scary. But for both of them, who dearly love Jesus, the the one anchored point for them was they knew the face they would see the moment they no longer saw ours. And that's all they were worried about. Is it going to be pretty? Is it going to be nice? Are there going to be streets of gold? Is it going to be, you know, what's the gate going to look like? You know, what's the, you know, what are angels going to be? That's, that's never the point. The point was Jesus saying, you'll be with me. The hope that was given to the New Testament church was not heaven's going to be great. Heaven's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. The hope was going to be, we know what Jesus did, we know what He accomplished, and the hope is the resurrection. When He makes us new, everything that's broken, flabby, and doesn't do what it's supposed to do in our bodies, He'll make that new, and He'll make this world new. And it's not just, cool, I get a new body and I get a new, a new earth. It's I get to have Jesus. The, the, the being that I was made to reflect His glory. Truly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. This was for one hanging on the cross, about to die. But for us, who are not hanging on the cross next to Jesus, we're sitting at the feet of Him, And unless some crazy freak accident happens, we've all got some time. And for some of us, as we think about time, it becomes a little scary. I don't know what it's going to bring. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Jesus' words, I think, can ring profoundly true to you as well. Just trust me, because on that day, you'll be with me in paradise. It's going to be His kingdom. Everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus says on this cross was a fulfillment, Him fulfilling, Him modeling what He taught to His disciples. He didn't have any ability to have any pretext to it. It's just Him being real. And Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father who's in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. 
and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the picture of eternity. You ask the question, what's heaven going to look like? It's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. It's the fulfillment of His kingdom ruling and reigning in this world. Everything that's broke, fixed. Everything that's wrong, right. Everything that hurts, not hurting anymore. With Him. Forever. So I don't have some grand application for us. I don't have something. I don't, I don't want to have that. I just want to invite you to spend this next week thinking about these two declarations of Jesus. Just imagine yourself sitting there on that horrific rock with people yelling and shouting, saying racial slurs and belligering Jesus and mocking Him, seeing the blood, seeing the sweat, feeling the sun burning and beating down on you. But listening to these words of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And today, You will be with Me in paradise. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we, um, we ask that You would help us by power of the Holy Spirit to do just that. Sit there and meditate on the words of Jesus and what they mean to us. So tempting for us to just say, well, this this needs to be for somebody else or someone needs to hear this or somebody else. But just imagine you, Jesus, looking us in the eyes from that cross and saying these words into our soul. Help us to stop. Easter comes... In about a few weeks, we know the end of the story. But prepare our hearts for Easter. There's some things that come before the resurrection that we have to wrestle with. Jesus, Your love displayed in excruciating pain as You willingly took upon Yourself the punishment that I deserved. So help us to just ponder what this means in our life. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.